The cost of a gallon of gas is 36 cents. A dozen eggs, 53 cents. Median household income is just above $9,000. And Richard M. Nixon is president of the United States. It's February 1971, a mere six months before the emergence of Americans United for Life onto the national scene. Dennis Horan, a nationally prominent attorney, is set to speak in Chicago to a gathering of Americans in remarks that would capture the tension and uncertainty of the pre-Roe era in America, as millions were awakening to the possibility of an all-male U.S. Supreme Court intervening to impose an anti-woman and anti-child jurisprudence in what would become Roe v. Wade. Join us as we journey into the past on this special historical edition of Life, Liberty, and Law. I'm Tom Shakely. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. We're about to hear from Dennis Horan as we travel back to February 1971. Later that year, Dennis would join hands with others to establish Americans United for Life. Dennis is about to speak about a critical case related to the human right to life, an Illinois state case called Doe v. Scott, which resulted in a 2-1 ruling holding that Illinois law dating to the early American Republic was unconstitutional for its protection of the human right to life in the initial weeks of a child's existence. At the time Dennis speaks to us, the case was on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Dennis and those who would go on to establish Americans United for Life had been asked to step in to advocate for life, and Dennis speaks not only as an expert on the substantive issues at stake in Doe v. Scott, but also as a prophetic voice who foresaw the catastrophic implications of an America that would embrace abortion and the way in which the devaluation of human life would ripple across the spectrum of life issues. Let's listen in. I'm Dennis Horan. First of all, the case called Doe v. Scott. The three of us were the attorneys representing Bart Heffernan, who intervened in this case. The ACLU filed it in approximately late February of 1970. Uh, about two days later, I received an urgent phone call from Dr. Heffernan at about 11 o'clock in the evening. It was on a Saturday. We rushed down to my office and started doing the research and researched our position there until about two in the morning. On the following Tuesday or Wednesday, <clears throat> we filed what has since become an historic document we intervened in the case and asked the court to appoint Dr. Heffernan as guardian ad litem for the class of unborn children. The court did so and did appoint Dr. Heffernan as the guardian ad litem. I say that was an historical document because in the abortion litigation that you've been hearing about around the country, this is the only case where a guardian ad litem was appointed to represent unborn children in the litigation. Other cases, attorneys have been allowed to file documents or to argue on behalf of unborn children as what we lawyers call friends of the court. But in this litigation, we were actually made a party and the court thus recognized that abortion involves not only doctors and women, but children also. Secondly, the decision that was handed down was a two to one decision which held that the law of Illinois, which I'll get into in a moment, was unconstitutionally vague 
for the first 12 weeks after. And the court, in its opinion, and in a, an opinion read later on the same day, indicated that it did recognize fetal rights and the fetal right to life commencing after 12 weeks. You might ask why 12 weeks? No one knows. Uh, it's just one of those things that comes out of a uh, tough case such as this. Tough because it was fought by everyone involved. I myself feel that the 12-week demarcation line was adopted because most of our opponents suggest that abortion in the 12, first 12 weeks is safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. They do this in virtue of some of the writings of Dr. Christopher Tietze, who relies on those Eastern European statistics, as you heard about this morning. That was a hotly debated issue in the case as to whether or not those facts were right or wrong. Apparently, the court accepted that version and made this arbitrary demarcation at the 12-week point. But how a statute can be vague for 12 weeks and not vague for the remaining 24 leaves most of us uh, just wondering about the good common sense of the individuals involved. The Illinois law on abortion that we were debating defines abortion as the use of any instrument, medicine, or drug, or other substance, whatever, with the intent to procure a mis miscarriage of any woman. It's what we call an any woman statute, which means that fetal life under this statute is protected from the moment of conception. That has always been the law in the state of Illinois until this case. That was a two-to-one decision, and that case is on appeal to the United States Supreme Court. We were fortunate in securing a stay order from Justice Marshall. That means that the effect of the decision is stayed and stops. The law remains as it always was until the court acts again. Now the court may very well act again this week because the full court may review the stay order issued by Judge Marshall. The full court can reverse that order and you can again have abortions starting in Illinois sometime this week, or it can refuse to reverse the order of Justice Marshall and let the case stand in its present posture until such time as it reaches the court and the entire matter can be decided on the merits. Now, the law in Illinois makes an affirmative defense. The doctor who performs an abortion when necessary to preserve the life of a mother cannot be convicted of a crime. Some of our opponents argue that this makes a doctor come into court and justify himself, but this is not true. The law in Illinois and most other states has always held that the burden of proof or the responsibility to convict always rests with the state. A doctor can stand mute, need say nothing, and the state must prove that the abortion was not performed in order to save a woman's life. That phrase, unless necessary to preserve a woman's life, is what our society built into the statutes to protect the life of the unborn child. That is the standard of due process and equal protection, which Henry Hyde spoke to you about. By due process, all we mean is that when you're accused, accused of a crime, you have a fair opportunity to defend yourself. You get a lawyer, as Richard Speck did, you get a jury who will listen to the facts and decide objectively on your guilt or innocence. 
You get an appeal to the Illinois Appellate Court, you get an appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court, and you get numerous appeals to the United States Supreme Court, such as we've seen recently in papers where men have had 14 and 15 appeals, men who have been convicted of murder. If it's only fair that a man who has committed a crime should be so treated, it would seem only fair that the unborn child who is completely innocent at least have some safeguards. For some historical reason, that safeguard was built into this statute because the question as to whether or not the life could be taken has been left to medical science. And the criterion was unless necessary to preserve the life of the mother. The attack made on those statutes is made on the basis that that clause is too vague to be understood by simple, ordinary men reading it, or that it is too vague to identify for the physician what the nature of the crime was or is. Now that statute has been on the books since 1828 in Illinois. Since Illinois didn't become a state till I believe 1813, that's pretty early in our history. And it's been in substantially the same form. There have been hundreds of hundreds of convictions under it. There has never been one voice raised saying that they could not understand it. As a matter of fact, the reason that it was adopted was because it's almost identical to the standard that any surgeon uses when he does anything. He doesn't perform any surgery unless it's necessary to preserve the life or health of a woman. As a matter of fact, when this Vuich case was argued before the United States Supreme Court, this was a question that Justice White put to the lawyer, Mr. Nellis, who was representing the famous abortionist, Dr. Vuich, he said, well, you mean to say that you don't understand that standard? Isn't that the same standard that you use every time you perform any aspect of your medical art, that you do not do it unless it's necessary to preserve the life or health of the woman? The other reason that's normally given is the woman's right not to have a child. Somehow this is found in the Ninth Amendment and is a penumbra, a shadow, that comes from the Ninth Amendment and from the Griswold case. The Griswold versus Connecticut case is, case is the U.S. Supreme Court case recently decided, perhaps five years ago, which held that the state of Connecticut did not have a compelling interest in a statute which invaded marital privacy and uh, refused a doctor a right to either talk about contraceptives or supply contraceptives to a married couple. That case has, has absolutely nothing to do with abortion, did not involve a pregnancy, and has nothing to do with the arguments in this area. However, it has been the touchstone and the crutch by which our opponents have raised themselves up to win several of these lawsuits around the country. Someone else here will tote up the score about the many, many legal victories that we've had around the country, which you have not heard about because the press will not report them. Now, approximately 14 states around the country have passed liberalized abortion bills. In four of them, excuse me, in seven of them, there are no time limits as to when an abortion can be performed. In four of them, abortion on demand has become legal for specified periods of time, except for instance in the state of Kansas, where it's legal during the entire pregnancy. The change that is usually made is to take that phrase that reads, unless necessary for the preservation of the woman's life, and change it to read, unless necessary for the preservation of the woman's life or health, and then add other reasons such as mental or physical health, plus rape, incest, fetal deformity, 
and then sometimes to require certificates from one or more or two doctors or three doctors that those conditions can be met. I will say that our opponents in the Chicago area particularly to object, object to some of this phraseology such as rape, incest, or fetal deformity because it's their position that such a statute makes a decision and says that we are talking about human life, but certain kinds of human life can be killed because of social reasons. So they would prefer to take the position that there can be no law whatever regarding abortion on the theory that that makes more logical sense, and it does. Because if you say that fetal life at some stage of its development can be protected because we're protecting humans, and then say that the life of a human can be taken because it was conceived in rape, you are making the kind of decisions that we fought wars about not too long ago. You're talking about human life and hanging in the balance with other values of much less consequence. The, the issue that we're involved with today is abortion. Uh, abortion is the top one-eighth of the iceberg that you see in this particular area. If abortion is legalized in the United States, we will be back here about five years from now, if not even less time than that, talking about euthanasia and infanticide. I have before me the bill that was introduced into the, of all places, Florida legislature in October of 1969, entitled an act relating to the right to die with dignity. This adds a new right to your Bill of Rights, and it says that no person shall be deprived of any right because of race, religion, or national origin, and adds in there that one of these additional rights in our traditional rights is the right to die with dignity. The phrase used is this, and the purpose of the bill is to ensure that your life shall not be prolonged beyond the point of a meaningful existence. Now, we're no longer talking about unborn children. We're talking about the aged, the senile, the helpless, the other end of the continuum. And the action is at both ends of this continuum. The action is at the unborn child end and at the aged end. Let me tell you a little about this bill. This says that if you have the mental competency to sign a will, then at any time during your life you can sign a document stating that you do not want your life prolonged beyond its meaningful existence but you're lucky in the event that you reach such a state and do not have the mental competency to sign the document, you're lucky if you're married because then your wife can sign the document. <laughs> However, if you're unlucky enough to be single and you have brothers and sisters, if there are two, then it must be majority vote. <laughs> if there are three or more, excuse me, if there are two, it must be a... Uh, unanimous vote. If there are three or more, then by a majority of vote. And then there's one more, and that is if the, you'd have no relatives at all living, then the physician can go into court and get a document from the court and order executed saying that your life can be terminated. So what we're talking about is a problem that exists at both ends of the continuum and probably somewhere in the middle too because people are already talking about infanticide. I mean, what's the difference if life is inconvenient the first nine months or before birth, it certainly is inconvenient when you're talking about a decerebrate child age three. And all you have to do is take the same argument and change the words here or there to include senility or 
decerebration or any other reason or any other category of human being that you want to talk about. In the event you think that some people don't feel this way, let me read to you a position on abortion by the Rabbinical Council of America. And the Rabbinical Council of America represents the Orthodox Jewish position and it is a very, very strong, strong anti-abortion position. In Judaism, the life of an unborn child is sacred and only when it is a threat to the mother can the moral issue of abortion be resolved. For each person to decide arbitrarily on the basis of economics or convenience whether a fetus is to survive is literally for man to play God and is religiously blasphemous and socially destructive. The recent passage of the New York State abortion law has opened a Pandora's box of frightful implications. Already we hear talk of legislation allowing euthanasia for the chronically ill and the aged. What we are witnessing is a basic dehumanization and depersonalization. The very worthiness of human life is depreciated if man both proposes and disposes. We reap here the moral corruption implanted into our generation by the virulent Nazi ideology which regarded men as disposable objects, expendable and exploitable for human ends. That's the position of the Rabbinical Council of America on abortion. The Commission of Theology of the Lutheran Church of Australia has issued a statement to this effect. The Lutheran Church with the Church of all ages upholds the biblical view that the fetus in the mother's womb is human life created by God, and as such this life is entitled to the care and preservation of which God's command provides for all mankind. The fetus has the right to live and to be protected by the laws of the state. Abortion in the sense of artificial or induced termination of pregnancy is therefore not justified. The Missouri Synod here in America has issued a similar statement in which relying strictly on scripture has indicated that the life in the womb must be thought of in terms of a personal being. It is a point made clear by such passages as Exodus where the law of retaliation is made to apply in cases of injury to a mother and or a child in her womb. And Jeremiah 1.5 which speaks of the consecration of the prophet before he was born. Isaiah says the same thing where he speaks of the consecration of the prophet before birth. The evangelist Luke moreover describes how the unborn baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy at Mary's greeting, Luke 1.41 thereby responding in the manner that all men are expected to react to God's presence, God's presence in the womb. We are living in an era when our society is filled with schizophrenia. You'll hear some of the other gentlemen talk about the legal rights of the unborn in other areas. You have in your package, the little blue package that was handed out to you, a statement by 4,000 delegates of all disciplines from the Child's Welfare Conference recently held before the, uh, for the President of the United States. Resolution number five reads, rights of children including basic needs and education require legal and other accountability of individuals and agencies responsible for providing them. Every child is entitled to good health and care from conception and to at least minimum standards of food, shelter, and clothing. Now, how anybody who signed that statement could endorse abortion, since it definitely is not good health and care to a child at any age, is beyond me, yet many of them have. 
This is a similar statement that's contained in the UN Declaration of Rights of the Child, which specifically states that a child, by reason of his physical and mental immaturity, needs special safeguards and care, including appropriate legal protection before as well as after birth. Our opponents facing up to many of these items that I've just indicated to you would prefer to argue that the unborn child is a mere blob of tissue or is not a human. You will see after we make this presentation a presentation based upon the fetal physiology which has become very well known only since about 1963 when Albert Lyley did his work. One more point that I would urge everyone to remember. First of all, in the event that any tragedy should occur, either that the Supreme Court could for some reason or other allow a woman to have as a right, uh, have an abortion as a matter of right, those of us here ought to remember that this fight is only beginning. Alan Guttmacher started on the other side of this picture in about 1933, and he's been at it since that length of time. And we ought to realize that the fight ahead of us could take 25 years to reverse many of the problems we face today, because whether or not we win the case in Illinois can be rather insignificant if the court says that some states or any state does have the right to pass a law taking away the constitutional rights of unborn children, such as has been done in New York. It'll be a very small victory if we win in Illinois and all the women can then move up to Wisconsin or Iowa, not Iowa, but any other adjoining state or New York and get their abortion. We're really kidding ourselves if we think we've accomplished something here. We have accomplished something, but not nearly enough. The fight has to be carried on until someday any law which would allow abortion on demand would be indefensible and would be stricken down by the court. Thank you. It's been nearly a half century since Dennis Horan offered these reflections on what faced America. And we know how the story has unfolded so far. What remains constant all these years later is our perennial hope and our confidence in America's ability to recognize and rectify our wrongs and to bring about an America where all are welcomed throughout life and protected in law. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, drop us an email at life at AUL.org. I'm Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law. Thank you.